0: This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Here is your host nurse practitioner, Mimi Secor. An estimated one in eight women in the United States today will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. In 2010, over 200,000 American women are expected to be diagnosed with invasive breast cancer, and another 54,000 will be diagnosed with non-invasive breast cancer. About 40,000 women in the United States are expected to die from breast cancer in 2010. For women in the United States, breast cancer death rates are higher than any other cancer besides lung cancer. And besides skin cancer, breast cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer, with more than one in four cancers being breast cancer. All women are at risk for breast cancer, with 75% of women diagnosed with breast cancer having no identifiable risk factors. Yet recently, the United States Preventative Services Task Force recommended against screening mammography in women under the age of 50. With me today is nurse practitioner Connie Roche from the Avon Comprehensive Breast Evaluation Center and Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and we're discussing best practice approaches for the diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer. Hello, Connie. Welcome to ReachMD. First, can you describe briefly your nurse practitioner role at the Avon Comprehensive Breast Evaluation Center, Connie?
1: Sure. I am one of four nurse practitioners and PAs working in collaboration with four breast surgeons in a center that provides both clinical and imaging evaluation of breast problems or women with breast problems. My practice consists of seeing women who present for evaluation of new breast problems women who come for screening, particularly if they're at high risk for breast cancer. And I also have a subspecialty in cancer genetics, so I do a lot of counseling of women who wonder about their risk and provide them information to go on in terms of what they can do to reduce their risk. And I also see women who have a diagnosis of breast cancer, either new diagnosis or a past diagnosis.
0: Certainly, we hear about the bad news related to breast cancer, but is there any good news about breast cancer?
1: Well, yes, I like to be very optimistic about breast cancer in that, despite its prevalence, there is both evidence of decrease in the incidence of breast cancer as well as in the mortality from breast cancer. Now, that seems counterintuitive because a lot of times women will say to me, well, gee, I know so many women with breast cancer and there must be an epidemic. But I think the impression of that has to do with the fact that women who are in the baby boom generation are a large group and are now in the prime years for developing breast cancer. So there may seem to be, and it may in fact be more numbers of women with breast cancer, but the actual incidence or rate of breast cancer has decreased. And according to the numbers that the American Cancer Society publishes, there was actually a decrease in the incidence of breast cancer by about 2% per year over the early decades of this Millennium. So between 1999 and 2006, each year there was a 2% decrease in the incidence compared to the year before. But even more encouraging is the fact that the death rate has decreased steadily. So in the 90s, there was a 24% reduction in the death rate from breast cancer. And I think that's very encouraging. That's been attributed primarily or in large part to screening and early detection, as well as to definitely improved treatments. And now that the incidence has decreased, the death numbers to breast cancer is going to be decreased as well.
0: What are the current recommendations for screening?
1: Well, as with other areas of healthcare, there's not always a consensus, but I think there's a lot of respect and following of the American Cancer Society guidelines, which is what we do here, and that basically, in terms of mammography, means that we recommend mammograms starting at the age of 40 on an annual basis. Now, there are some exceptions to that in that women who have very strong family history, and we can talk about that a little bit as well, women with strong family history, we might start earlier, and we have sort of a rule of thumb that if women have been diagnosed young in a family, we will start mammograms younger than that age. So if a woman has a family member who had breast cancer at age 39, we will start mammograms at age 29.
0: That's important information. So would there ever be a time when you would screen under the age of 29 with mammography?
1: There's, you know, disagreement or different opinions as to when is the earliest one should start. But I'd say that would be anywhere between 25 and 30, depending on the institution or the recommendation of the radiologist. And then the other issue is when to stop mammograms. And there's never been a study that's looked at women over the age of 75 to determine the effectiveness of mammography in terms of reduction of death from breast cancer. So there's another rule of thumb that we use, which is doing mammograms until a woman has an expected life expectancy of at least five years. So a woman who has very debilitating disease, dementia, it maybe is in a nursing home and doesn't have uh, has many comorbidities, that might be indication to stop doing mammography.
0: What do you think about the highly controversial, recently published United States Preventive Services Task Force recommendations against screening mammography in women under the age of 50?
1: Well, I think you've got that right. um, (laughs) It certainly was controversial, and I sort of knew the minute I heard it last November that there would be a lot of discussion, and there certainly was. The guidelines basically recommended starting mammograms only at the age of 50 and doing so every two years, which is a pretty dramatic change from prior guidelines. And as they do with other health maintenance and screening recommendations, they look at potential benefits versus harms. Mm -hmm. So what they did was they looked at the number of exams it would take to avert a death from breast cancer, and they looked at the incidence of breast cancer per age group, looked at the benefits versus harm, and then placed a value on that. So a lot of their recommendation was based on the value of that. So it would take more women, you would have to screen many more women in their 40s to save a life than women in their age 50s or older. Now, what they didn't address was benefits other than lives saved, so they didn't address the fact that if you detect cancers later, you will have more women who can't preserve their breasts and need mastectomies. You'll have more women who will need chemotherapy because they have more advanced disease, and so the issue of quality of life was not specifically addressed.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reach MD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, and I'm speaking today with nurse practitioner Connie Roche from the Avon Comprehensive Breast Evaluation Center at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and we are discussing best practice approaches for the diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer. So, Connie, what are the pros and cons of mammography?
1: Well, I think the pros are pretty clear in that mammograms have been proven to save lives. So there were a number of studies that were done in the 70s that compared Mortality to breast cancer in women who were screened with mammography versus those who were not. So there was a definite evidence that mammography saved lives. Mammograms basically can detect cancers that are smaller than those that are detected by exam and therefore more successfully treated. But they're not perfect at detecting cancers. So the sad thing about breast cancers are that some about mammography and its effectiveness is that some breast cancers will escape mammographic detection. And those tend to be the more aggressive cancers. And so even with the best of adherence to mammography guidelines, women might fail to be diagnosed with an early stage treatable breast cancer. The false positives are the issue that is brought up by the people who are opposed to frequent and earlier age mammography in that a false positive is anyone that's called back for extra views on their mammogram who have to have a biopsy and all the stress, anxiety, and cost that's associated with that. So I think that that's probably the main harm of mammography.
0: What should we know about digital mammography, Connie? And is that available everywhere?
1: Well, I think in terms of the availability, it seems to be something that as centers, add to their equipment or update their mammography tools, they're more likely to purchase and move towards digital mammography. So that at this point, I think about 60% of facilities are digital. And I think one of the misconceptions about digital mammography is that it's very different from film screen mammography. Number one, the experience is the same, so it's still the same compression, two views of mammography, but the advantage is that the images are electronically stored, so the technology is similar to digital photography technology, and the images can be better manipulated and viewed by the radiologist. There is some evidence that there's less radiation with Mm -hmm. digital mammography, so that's a benefit, and there is evidence that women with denser breasts and women that are premenopausal have a slightly better outcome in terms of detection, so when they compared film screen to digital mammography, it was women under the age of 50 that did benefit from that. And the American Cancer Society, knowing that digital mammography is not available everywhere, recommends that digital mammography is an acceptable alternative. So they really don't place that much value over film screen.
0: And what about MRI? And when should we order that, Connie?
1: MRI has been historically used for problem solving, similar to ultrasound, in that MRI can evaluate problems in the breast that escape mammographic detection or or diagnosis. But the question I think that you're asking is, what about for screening? And the recommendation now is that because MRI has been shown to be more sensitive than mammography, that it is recommended for women who are at high risk. And who are those women at high risk? Those are the women with hereditary breast cancer family history, women who have a BRCA mutation or women who are likely to, and women who have had mantle radiation such as that used for Hodgkin's disease when they were under the age of 30.
0: So you're getting into breast cancer risk factors, which I think that clinicians know the basics about, but how can we better identify those at higher risk?
1: Well, there are two parts to the higher risk category. One is those who have had a pathologic diagnosis that would place them at increased risk, and those diagnoses are atypical hyperplasia and lobular carcinoma in situ, which while it sounds like cancer is really not, it's a marker for Mm -hmm. increased risk. Those people generally are identified by their surgeons or whoever has been responsible for their biopsy. Beyond that, I think family history is the primary tool that we have to identify women who are specifically at significantly increased risk. That said, most cancers occur sporadically and are not hereditary, which families have hereditary cancer? Typically, in those families, there will be many women affected. The women are diagnosed at a young age, under 40 or 45. They're more likely to have bilateral disease, and there's more likely to be ovarian cancer in the family. Those are the features that you want to look at to identify women in your practice that deserve special attention or more careful surveillance.
0: And are there any risk assessment models, such as the Gale model, that may help clinicians?
1: Well, the Gale model is certainly the most widely used and easily accessible model, and it's available through the National Cancer Institute. The failings of the Gale model are that what it does take into account are a woman's age, her age at menarche, age of first live birth, number of first-degree relatives with breast cancer, and history of biopsies. But it doesn't take into account the feature that I mentioned earlier, of the family members that have had cancer, which is early age at diagnosis. So it doesn't account for whether someone's mother had breast cancer at 30, which would be very concerning, versus a woman whose mother had breast cancer at 70. It also doesn't account for paternal family history. I just have to emphasize that because the paternal relatives, that is the sisters and mother of the father, in the case of a woman, would be women who were not first-degree relatives but would be definitely in line to incur risk to that woman.
0: And who should get genetic testing beyond what the advanced practice clinician can offer in primary care?
1: The main thing for primary care providers to look at is the features that I mentioned. Many women affected, but more importantly, even as young age at diagnosis, and in addition to that, families that have both breast and ovarian cancer. So those would be people that you'd think about to refer for genetic counseling because genetic testing, while it's as simple as a blood test... There are such complexities in terms of truly evaluating the family as well as preparing a woman for the outcome of testing results and making a management plan. So I would say that for the primary care practitioner, the most important thing is to identify those women and then refer them to specialists.
0: And how do we locate those specialists, Connie, like you?
1: In most large academic or cancer centers, there will be specialists within that setting. But in the larger community, there are also more and more providers of genetic counseling, and those could be nurses, they could be oncologists, sometimes they're in GYN practices. As far as finding those people, I think one good source is to go through the breast oncologists in the area. But in addition to that, there are a couple of websites, and one of them is the National Cancer Institute. And if you just Google cancer genetic services, you will get the list of providers. And the National Society of Genetic Counselors is another source of referral information.
0: Well, thank you, Connie, for being on the show today and for sharing your incredible expertise. It has been a pleasure talking with you today.
1: Well, my pleasure. Thank you, Mimi.
0: You've been listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160. You can download this program and any other program in our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.